To me, at the core of our problem education is this idea that bureaucratically it is necessary that we assess and measure learning, even though it is impossible to assess and measure learning. Welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, and parent of two kind of awesome kids. Every week I talk to leading educational thinkers and doers, and we do a deep dive into some of the challenges and opportunities that face educators today, and I offer practical steps on what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they'll live in. So in case you may be new to this podcast, each month we take on a different theme from four different angles, and this week we're looking at our theme of community through our third lens, that of classroom practice, as in what would the classroom look like if the community itself was the curriculum? Well, that's a question that this week's guest Dave Cormier has been grappling with for over a decade. His work around rhizomatic learning has generated a ton of new thinking about what classrooms might be in the modern world. And in this model, curriculum is not driven by predefined inputs from experts. It's constructed and negotiated in real time by the contributions of those engaged in the learning process. Now, that idea fits pretty neatly into the self-determined learning world of the Internet, where we can choose our teachers, our information sources, and our experiences in profound new ways. But it's not as neat of a fit into traditional classroom systems and structures. So... In this episode, Dave and I talk about what a rhizomatic learning environment is like, the importance of language in change, the difference between complicated and complex, and the struggle to shift students away from being experts as students to instead being experts as learners. I'm sure it's going to tweak your thinking in good ways. So that conversation is coming up real fast, but I want to remind you to check out our two big professional learning opportunities coming this fall for those of you who are wanting to continue pushing your thinking and expand your global PLC in the process. Our ninth cohort of Change School starts on September 30th, and at this moment we have a few seats left. It's an eight-week intensive dive into how the world is changing, the ways in which schools are already changing and how you can lead a long-term sustainable change initiative in your school or in your community. Check it out at change.school. And also, check out the five new Modern Learners Labs that we have on the calendar for October through January. My friends Gary Steger and Homa Tavanger and I will be in five different cities up and down the East Coast doing these two-day events that will exhaust and inspire you in a very good way. You can get all the details about those at modernlearners.com slash labs. Finally, as always, at the end of my conversation with Dave, I'll be back with three things that you can do right now to move your schools and classrooms to a deeper sense of community. And don't forget, if you like what you hear today, please head over to iTunes and give us some love with a review and a rating. And I hope you'll continue the conversation around community with us in our Modern Learners community. That's modernlearners.community. Cheers, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. So Dave, about, it's been about 10 years since you really started expanding on this idea of rhizomatic learning. Mm-hmm. And at that point in one of your long essays on that topic, you said, in the rhizomatic model of learning, curriculum is not driven by predefined inputs from experts. It's constructed and negotiated in real time by the contributions of those engaged in the learning process. So I'd love it if you talked a little bit more about that concept, that idea that learning is not something that's really planned and not certainly as planned as we see it happening in education. So talk a little bit more about what that looks like in a learning sense. For sure. Um, For me, the concept came out of my questions around the disconnect between what I saw as learning around me and what I saw actually happening inside my own classroom. So when I started, like lots of teachers, I assumed that there were things I had to do when I went to a classroom. I had to have a lesson plan. I had to know what I was going to, I had to have clear objectives because we all know that outcomes are better when students know exactly what they're supposed to learn. And yet in the rest of my own life, even as a teacher, I never knew what to expect. I never, none of my life was ever planned that way. And any of the things I learned as a teacher were ever set out that way either. So anything you learn in an education program, you know, every plan fails first contact with first contact with the enemy, right? And it's like that when you walk into a classroom, your plan just goes poof, 
when little Johnny gets up and punches the kid next to him and you're like, oh my God, how is this going to happen? But that learning process for me, whatever it happened to be, was never that distinct. Nobody ever gave me a learning objective and there always seemed to be a disconnect there. And so when we were talking about what was possible with the internet, right, with access to information, with access to people with knowledge, and I make that distinction purposefully, the internet is full of information, full of content as it were, but it's not filtered in any way. It's the humans on the internet that I think are particularly valuable and that access to other humans who may know something and have experience at something. So what's the potential there for letting learning not be different, not be new, but actually be more natural, more like the way that we do it all the time. So when we become friends, we become a partner or we learn to cook, cooking's a great example. You can take all the cooking classes in the world, but if your hands aren't the right temperature, when you're touching the butter, when you're making a scone, it doesn't work. Well, you can learn that or read that in a book all you want. At some point, it's an exploration. And for me, that process of coming to know, that process of becoming something, of becoming a person who knows, is always an exploration. So if you set up a learning exam, if you set up a learning environment where what you're going to know is predefined, you're setting up an artificial environment that always means that you're necessary as a teacher. Nobody can learn if you're not there. Nobody can learn if you haven't given them an objective. And that's not what I want for my students. So for me, designing an environment where the community is the curriculum is saying, let's try to learn like we learn everything else. Let's try to develop um, learning tools for ourselves and our ability to communicate with others that will actually extend past the classroom and allow us to learn better in all the things we're trying to learn. Let's, let's work on those skills. So when you look back at the pedagogy, particularly of the 70s, and some great early andragogy stuff, um, where they're talking about how we need to respect the people, what people know when they come into the classroom, we need to respect each individual student, you map that up against that, that, that off-repeated and rarely done student-centered learning. Um, to me, if I tell you before I meet you what you're going to learn, you as a learner are in no way involved in that project, right? So we've got the natural learning process that we always have anyway, that when we talk about learning anything outside the classroom that we have, we have that individuation that we all say that we want, and yet with a pre-described curriculum, we tell everybody what they're gonna know before we get to know them, right? You've got that preset. And then you've got the possibilities of people growing past you, right, as an educator. So I never, never want to limit the horizon of possibility of my students to me. I mean, I want them to be able to do better than me. But if I predefine what that learning is, then at some degree, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm saying becoming me is really the horizon of your aspiration. You know, as long as you end up being me, we're all fine. And I want something more than that for my students. And I think they're probably going to want that too. So then that's where this whole idea comes in, right? And we talk about the difference between a preset curriculum where I know exactly what I'm going to try to get to, where I make clear expectations of people and I want everybody to learn the same thing to saying, we're going to develop a curriculum together. We're going to learn together. And the process of learning is going to be the interaction between all of us. So as you come across pieces of information, as you find nodes of knowledge, as you yourself start to know, we're going to start knowing together. And it doesn't really matter what each of the individual points of content is. It doesn't really matter whether or not you've achieved that particular outcome or Jimmy got that one or Janie got that one. It's not relevant. What's relevant is whether or not we've come to know together. And for me, um, whether or not people are working hard, which is always the benchmark for me. And I'm comfortable um, being formative on all of the content pieces and saying, yeah, you might want to think about this and yeah, well, you might want to look at this, but really more of a, of a, of a disciplinarian around the work ethic piece. And again, an argument I've made a hundred times work ethic. I can sell to the government all day long. I'm teaching kids to be independent in their own work and get their work done. So that's a, sort of a sketch of, of where it comes from, but you know, like, how do you do this in practice? Right. So let me just, let me just back up a second. So it's a pretty, I don't know if radical is the right word, but it's a, it's a departure from yeah. the way that we think about, certainly the way we think about teaching and learning in classrooms. And so it, it, it brings up a whole bunch of questions, right? So one of them is, do we do this then under the umbrella of subjects? 
I mean, do we even say that there's going to be a history class or a chemistry class? Or is this type of learning something that we do just um, as a general experience and we pull history and chemistry into that when it's relevant and when it's required? Or what does that look like? I mean, because I know that people listening probably are going, it sounds like chaos in yeah. a lot of ways. You oh, know, there's not, there's, and it, it might be, but I mean, is there any structure that you see that maybe molds at least the content in terms sure. of a subject type of it? For me, it depends on your context, right? So what I described is really not all that far from what Montessori is. Um, so there are definitely already schools that take on certain kinds of approaches, although Montessori in practice, it depends on who's running the school. Um, but so, so there are environments where you can just wipe the slate clean and let kids learn as they want to learn. Frankly, we don't have enough money to run that school system. Um, I think that'd be fantastic, but that conversion while a dream of mine, and I would love to run that school um, is not, that's a dream and something I like to have a glass of wine over and talk about. And you know, it's, that'd be super fantastic. But what I'm more interested in is what you can do in the real classroom. Right. So I got a challenge to me, I think it was three or four years ago. A blog post is on my blog actually, where somebody told me, yeah, 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 yeah but you're never going to do that in the sciences. So I went, oh, okay, never going to do that in the sciences. So um, by happenstance, I ended up getting a job uh, as a consultant at the uh, provincial education, the, the Department of Education in Prince Edward Island. So in Canada, just for some context, we have the curriculum is written by um, the Department of Education, by the provincial authority, and then it's distributed and, and the practice is done by the board at the board level. So I was working at the department level where we were designing the curriculum, the content that was going to be in the classroom. But I had really good contacts with the board. So I developed, I got into developing the grade 11 computer science curriculum. A, con a piece of content you would imagine would never, ever, ever work this way. All we got to do is learn how to code, right? Look, all we're trying to do is get people set up because coding is important and everybody needs to learn how to code and all the other stuff we've pushed to their ridiculous future jobs agenda. So I said, okay. What does it look like to bring new people to this environment? Because we were 95% boys at that time in grade 11 computer science. So that was a real target. And these are practical targets, right? I'm not talking about the, the theory is grandiose and, and whatever. But in practice, there are real targets here that make a difference. Whenever you take stuff away from rote learning, different people come in. The kinds of rote learning that we have in our classrooms benefit a certain kind of whiteness, benefit a certain kind of middle classness. They reward certain kinds of speaking, of storytelling that do not include the vast majority of people who go to our schools. Certain type of gender as well? Certain type of gender, definitely. Like I said, 95% male in grade 11 computer science. So these were real practical targets that we were going after. So the first thing that we decided is we didn't care if anybody learned how to code. Um, for and a coding class. For a coding class. <laughs> did not care. Okay. Okay. That was the first step. And that was the hardest step. That was the one that people, they revolted. Right? And they say, what's the point, right? Well, I asked them a separate question. Are they learning how to code now? Well, no, that's why we're redoing the curriculum. Right. So currently they're not learning how to code. Well, people can only learn to code on their own. Nobody can learn to code in the classroom. Okay. You, you've accepted that as a starting premise. And I'm okay. This is the teachers. We're sitting around with the teachers who teach computer science for the province. These are the kinds of things they're saying to us. So, okay. Um, it's a lot of work. I learned to code and I worked with um, university uh, coding instructors and they would say the same thing. Basically people can either code or they either put the time in to learn how to code or they don't. And that's depends on whether or not they like it. And you only really learn to code at home doing the work yourself. Okay. Let's take those as our industry statement of how people are learning in the current state. So we're not currently learning how to code. That's not happening in our classrooms. Okay. So then how do we design a curriculum that makes coding more fun? That makes it more interesting. That's going to make them work harder. I'm not saying they're not going to learn how to code. I'm actually hoping they do. I'm just saying I'm not going to assess it. Right. Learning how to code is not what we're going to assess. What we're going to assess and what we did in this case, we split the course into two. We assessed, a very rigid project management approach inside the classroom. So I gave them a very straight up, here's how you do, here's your goals, here's your objectives, here's your whatever. The first one was super rigid. It got freed up at the end, but, and they had to deliver on real project management targets. So pretty restrictive, very constrained. 
The second half of it was all social emotional learning. So they had to do emotional reflections based on the feedback we've gotten from teachers and students about how they felt about the classes now. Right. So what we did, we, we found one of the first things we found in our in our testing was that a lot of kids are particularly upset by the noise inside of a computer classroom. Right. That was a real difficult time. A lot of the students who were in there hated doing group work and couldn't figure it out. Right. So we did reflections and explorations and how you actually do that stuff better based on a social emotional learning framework that we found uh, an international social emotional learning framework and we assessed hard on the on the project management we assessed effort on um on the social emotional learning and i still haven't talked about coding yet right that's the design of the course now down the middle of the course was a series of arduino projects right the first one was an elastic band launcher there are zero people who do not want to fire an elastic band in the classroom i'm just telling you right now it's right. And so it's a really simple, but the, the basic premise of the course is you steal code, right? So you don't write code from scratch, you steal code, and then you slowly deconstruct it and adapt it. Steal code, deconstruct and adapt, steal code, deconstruct and adapt. Again, that's actually how everybody codes anyway. <laughs> right? That's the reality. Again, more like real life, what people are actually going to do, a real skill, go find the code you need, adapt it as you like, we spend a lot of time talking about citing it and sourcing it and saying where you got it from, those kinds of good practices, but steal code and adapt. So the first, the very first activity is to steal the code and change all the variable names to funny na the names you think are fun. And so, but then you've got to find the variables and you've got to pick them out. So there's, there are key skills we're looking for, but in no way are we going to assess them. We're just going to keep talking about them, working through them, reviewing them. Um, going at them reflexively, keep coming back to them all the way through the course, but at no point are you going to have a multiple choice exam that asks you what, um, right. what a variable is. You assess the social emotional learning and what this allows. And the first one, you have the elastic band launcher. The second one, they were to design their own uh, mini golf hole. And then the third one was totally whatever they wanted to do. Right now, now, the idea here is the way that the interactions are set up, everything's in pairs or partners or groups or whatever, that growing together and running into obstacles together and finding out those answers together is actually the part of the learning that we're interested in. Because what we really want them to do is to understand how to problem solve with each other. When you look at inside the curriculum document, those high level values things that we say that we never really do, but we really tried to do them. We want them to develop better social emotional skills when working with others in the classroom. That the curriculum of that can only be the community. That can only be how you're doing the practice, how you're seeing people react to situations, how you work your way through those things, how you sort of socialize yourself to your environment. And that coming to know inside the coding coming to know inside that classroom was ideally and had been in some cases and it totally depends on the teacher because we had some ups and downs when it hit the road they came to know coding with each other through their enthusiasm, through their excitement, but not in a specific way that was particularly important to me. So some people learned how to do loops better. Some people learned how to do other things. Some people learned how to do other things, but it didn't matter, right? It was the group sort of development that was actually important. So there's a really practical example of a really difficult case. I mean, you take this into language arts and super easy, right? Yeah. I mean, so when you were saying that, I was, I was reminded of how I learned HTML back in the day. And Ooh. basically it was going in and finding some code that I thought was the part of the page that I wanted to try to replicate, stealing it, plugging my own stuff in there and then hitting publish to see what would happen and yep. then having to kind of deconstruct it. And it is the way that we learn. I mean, it, it's, it's so much more natural to go and try to tease something out that you really want to make work than it is to try to do someone else's work for you. So I totally get that. So I'm wondering, though, the extent to which explicit teaching still holds a place in all of this. So let's say, again, for instance, let's say it's a history class okay. that I'm in. So uh, what's my role as a teacher then? If I'm not, if I'm not delivering a curriculum, if, I'm not, uh, if, I, if I haven't preordained what you're going to learn before I even meet you, which I love right. that phrase, right? What's my role? What do I do then? Is it just trying to create the environment under which kids can do this type of learning? Is it to 
pull at an appropriate moment from the canon or the, you know, the, the textbook or whatever else? I mean, what does it look like for me as a teacher? I think it's all those things. I have a funny feeling it's the way you teach already. Uh, and for a lot of people, it probably is the way they like to teach. You're the real guide on the side, right? You are, yes, definitely setting up the ecology and we're with this good. And part of that ecology is designing the course so that you can free up creativity, right? So if you don't design something, that's why we did project management. We knew as soon as we put project management in it, all the hard core people in the department would be like, oh, you're doing real work over there. That's okay. You guys can go along. So partially the teacher's job is to create an environment. And part of that's like creating an assessment model that allows that, that creativity to, to go. Um, one of the biggest issues for me as a teacher inside of this is slowing people down. So the very first time I taught a course like this, I had two students, they're teachers, I was teaching teachers, come back on a Monday morning exhausted. And I looked at them, I was like, bad weekend? Or, and they're like, no, 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 I put like 21 hours into my assignment this weekend. I was like, whoa, hold on a second. <laughs> because I hadn't set clear objectives, the sort of A-type personalities would not stop working. They were trying to check every objective, right? Trying to check everything, <laughs> trying to do all the things, yeah. which again, never occurred to me at the beginning, but something, sometimes you're, you're holding people back and sometimes you're pushing them forward. So you're walking by and sort of doing that work of deprogramming where you've got people who are like, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Look, just, just tell me what I need to do. I just need an A in this class. Just tell me what it is. Right. And a lot of it is the deprogramming work with those people, right? And saying, well, look, I actually care what you think. Um, I actually want you to, to, to do something that you're interested. Well, I don't have things that I'm interested in doing. Just tell me what to do. Like, so is, it, is there a period of detox you think that yeah. people have to go through? Yeah. And, and, and unlearning and, yeah. and sh that shift is just very difficult for some people to handle because it just looks so and feels so different from what they're used to. Yeah. And I think the panic for a teacher is very different in this environment. So if you are in a free, like a, a lecture, let's say a hardcore history lecture, let's go back to that example. And you know that you're going to give a 40-minute lecture at the start of your class. I can't even imagine doing that anymore. But a 40-minute lecture. I guess I gave talks that are 40 minutes long. Um, you're going to do that. And your points of worry are, does this lecture make sense? Um, are those people paying attention? Did, did little Johnny just fall asleep in the back of the class? Like, your points of concern are there. They're internalized in a way that you're accustomed to as a teacher. Whereas if you walk into a more rhizomatic classroom, those concerns are going to be new for you, right? What if nothing starts? What if we don't know what to talk about? What if nobody says anything, right? Because you don't have that lesson, that clear lesson plan to defend you, to hold you in, um, it can be really off-putting because those points of nervousness, which we all have as teachers, I think, at least I do, I'm assuming you do, we know them, they're comfortable. Right. Whereas in this case, a lot of them are super new. Like what is going to happen? What if somebody goes down a bad road? What if they end up on a, sort of one of the, Oh God, white nationalism. Like you can't let people onto the internet right now and not worry about this. Right. What if that's what ends up being their view of history? How do I handle that in the classroom? Right. So the concerns of the unknown, I think are really significant ones. Um, and yeah, teach history would be really interesting that way. I mean, again, though, multiple perspectives and look, it allows for um, a much more developed understanding of what history looks like, I would say. And that would be the role of the teacher to kind of okay. contextualize those things yeah. in that way. So I'm guessing that culture plays a huge role in the classroom community, yeah. if we're going to do that, right? That you have to develop a culture of trust, of, yeah. of uh, respect, all those types of things. What do you think is the best way to begin to develop that type of culture? Because it's one thing to drop kids into that environment, mm. but it's another then to try to build that type of culture of learning in the entire system. And then the dropping into that isn't as, as harsh. It's, it's, it's almost, it could become comfortable, I would guess. It can. And then you're right. That starting part is super hard. Um, I think one of the things that, that we need to remember all the time is that our students are experts at being students. They have, unless you're teaching a kindergarten class, like even then, 
they come so automatically pre-structured to what that environment looks like. Because but they're they experts. Stories. They've heard right? stories. They've heard stories. <laughs> they know what they're supposed to do. How do you get through kindergarten? Right? right? Triple on the table. They know what they're yeah. supposed to do. That's the community. <laughs> That's the community. Right? Um, so they're experts at being students. And I think you have to be respectful of that. So if you start claiming, and I've had this happen where people look at me and go, you're teaching wrong. What you're doing is not teaching. You're wasting my time. Like I've literally had kids look at me and look me in the face and say that. Adults, certainly. Um, so I think the first part of developing that culture is establishing new language. So one of the things that I always do anytime, so I, I taught a two and a half day seminar course a few months ago. And the very first activity, I'll, I'll give you a really like concrete, discrete first activity that I do when I do this. I always try to separate the words complicated and complex at the start of everything I ever teach. And the reason for that is there are some things that just aren't complex. They're not about creativity. They're just discrete. They need to be, I used the, the word that you used a while ago, I forget, like you need to teach them explicitly, right? So I have no doubt that that's true. So I don't want people um, meandering through their times tables, like just learn them. I don't, let's not talk about it. Just, just memorize them. They're useful to have in your head. Um, though you can learn your way towards that in a lot of different ways. Um, <laughs> So the activity that I do, that, that I did that day, is I got, I uh, put the class into two groups, and I took a series of stamps, okay, and uh, letters A to Z and one ink pad, and I took the first group, and I threw them on the table, and I gave them each a sheet of paper, and I said, get all your names on the name tag, on the sheets. Chaos ensues. People are grabbing letters and trying to get them stamped, and they're all over the place, and it takes however long. It takes a long time. I said, okay. Now, group two, what I want you to do is while this is happening, I want you to watch them and come up with a better process, right? Figure out a better way to do it. And then I'm going to give you guys a chance to go ahead and do it. You can have five minutes to sit and think about it, come up with a plan and then go. So inevitably the second group does it in half the time. And I said, okay, the objective here was complicated. I could measure that objective in very simple ways. Did you have your names on the sheet? And how much time did it take you? Those are discrete objectives. Lots of things are like that. So those are complicated things. Complex things are questions like, how much fun did you have while you did that activity? Well, I can't measure that in a way. We can get a sense of it. We can approach it. We can talk about it. But I'm not going to grade you based on how much fun you had. I'm not going to tell you how much fun you had. I'm not going to tell you how much fun you were supposed to have. Those things in, in our culture don't make sense to talk about in that way. Those are complex things. So in this classroom, whenever we're dealing with complicated things, I will explicitly talk to you about them and we will deal with them in that way. And where complex things, we'll negotiate them between us. And there'll be things that we grow together towards understanding. So the, the key to getting that classroom culture started is to give people language that makes sense to them Right. Um, that fits their own experience. And I find that activity a really good one to, um, to get people to understanding what that distinction is. And then you've got your first piece of language and somebody says, well, yeah, what about, and you go, okay, no, nope. granted, that's a complicated concept. Let's just go through it. We'll get that one cleared up. We'll get it in our heads and then we'll move back to the creative piece. So I think those, those points of establishment of language are key to starting that culture. Yeah. And I mean, we, you know, obviously we talk about a lot about that in our work that the most important word to have some coherence around is what is learning. Because if yeah. your definition of learning is different from my definition of that's learning, right. then that's going to create a totally inconsistent experience of school for kids. And then they're going to end up just wanting to figure out how to win in your class and how that's different from winning in my class. And the that's learning right. really gets kind of lost in that. Because they're expert students. They are. We'll and figure it out. Yeah, no question. And I mean, I saw that with my own kids. And when I was teaching, it was always, hey, Mr. Richardson, what do I need to do to get the B? Yeah. You know, it was never, you know, what can I do to learn more about what we're <laughs> talking about in class today? Hey, I want to take a quick break from our conversation to let you know about what I think is the most powerful professional learning destination for educators online, and that is our Modern Learners Community Plus. You know, at a time when change is accelerating, when social media is getting increasingly toxic, and when we're faced with big questions in education that demand serious answers, MLC Plus offers a safe, respectful intelligence base on the web to help you make sense of what to do next. 
MLC Plus is about community. We're building a movement to change the experience of schooling for kids around the world to better prepare them for the world today. Our community builds our collective and individual capacity to do that. MLC Plus is about challenge. Our carefully selected links and theme-driven conversations are meant to push your thinking, to get you to scrutinize your practice, and to catalyze your journey to reimagine education and schooling. But most of all, MLC Plus is about learning. Through our diverse book studies, our live coaching sessions with the Modern Learners team, our constant conference, our special workshops and masterclasses, your learning doesn't have to stop. And since all of our interactions are archived for later viewing, it's your learning on your schedule. So if you're looking for more quality conversations with a global lens within a passionate community of educators, all in one respectful, easy to access, time-saving space, I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than MLC+. Head on over to modernlearners.community right now, and let's change the story of education for the modern world together. And now, back to our conversation. You know, and it's been interesting, too, because in the last couple of days, and this is the first time I've ever seen this, in the last couple of days, I've seen a couple of people writing about how they are collecting data on the things that you've just talked about, and they are including those in their end-of-year assessments. So data on kids' creativity or joy, happiness, the socio-emotional pieces of that. And I'm wondering the extent to which you would uh, try to, or I wonder how you would go about measuring those things. Mm. Is, it, is it just observation? Is it survey? Is it reflection? And then how do you, how do you would you put that into some data? Never. Um, Sense I and, never would. And then you use that, use, that to, use that to move forward. So talk a little bit about it. I, I think you break it. As soon as that happens, you break it. Anytime so, you so the, the, as soon as you start collecting data on the joy students have in class or their mm-hmm. love of learning or anything like that, then you kind of subvert the whole, con- the whole purpose the whole, of doing it. Because then what ends up happening is you start driving towards joy. And then you start driving towards the way you're measuring joy. So joy, why, wouldn't we do, why wouldn't we do that? Why, why is that a bad thing? Well, it depends on how we define joy, doesn't it? So let's say that joy <laughs> is every time, we're going to measure it by how many times a kid lifts their hand in class. We're talking about enthusiasm every time they lift their hand in class. So then suddenly you start developing activities that are designed to get kids' hands lifted in class. And then you start counting the hands. And then after a while, hands don't actually represent enthusiasm. They go back to being what so much of our schools are, which is behaviorism. I have made you lift your hand, right? Anytime you take something complex and make it complicated so you can measure it, you have broken the thing, right? So I have no problem with person. I mean, if you want to talk about data, like in a qualitative way, and you're saying, I want students to do a personal reflection at the end of class to talk about the happiness they had. And you want to like go through that and, and talk about like do an ethnography on that. And pre- yeah, I'm, that's fine. Um, if you want to count happy, I think you've left the path of wisdom. Like, I, I think if it doesn't make sense in your own life and it, and if maybe it does, maybe it does for some people, I, I, I don't understand how it could, but if I said I'm 84%, I don't want to give the number 84% happy in my partnership with my partner. Right. What am I saying like <laughs> I got the cough in the other room. <laughs> what, what does that even mean? Right. Based on right. what standard based on like, what's the, what's the zero expectation for happiness? And then what's one? Right. And so there's a quote that I found in one of your blog posts too, where you said so much of our system is defined and constrained by how we measure success. You know, so often we default to the easy measurement to the convenient measurement and lose our way altogether. But yet we do want to evaluate those things in some way. Right. I mean, we do want some sense if, if it's, you know, if we're looking for skills and dispositions, let's say, rather than content knowledge or do you actually know what six times six is or yeah. can you actually code this particular thing, this particular yeah. page? And, and one of my favorite quotes of all time, by the way, and, I, you know, I, I can't find the person or I can't f- remember where I read this, but it's a quote that says, if we don't assess the things we value, we'll end up valuing the things we assess. And I do really think that that's the state of public education and education in general. We, we, assess, we assess stuff that we don't really value, but we value it because we can assess it. Yeah. And, and so it, this we is have really, to. 
It's, yeah, it's a really interesting question as to how we shift the idea of knowing whether kids are developing those dispositions that we want them to develop in order to be powerful learners because yeah. learners need to be persistent. They need to cr think critically. They need to do all those types of things that are more important than knowing a whole bunch of stuff today. So, I mean, how you've do we done do tons that? of teacher training, right? You've done, you've been up there tons and tons of times in front of teachers and working with them. And a lot of times. Yep. Um, how many of the teachers would you say in classrooms today have those dispositions that we're trying to get the kids to have? I think a lot of them have them, but they don't employ them all the time in their work. And would I, they recognize them before they go through a process of discovery? Would they know that they have them? That's a great question. I'm not sure. Um, so you would, you would hope. I, you would hope, but, but in, 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 the number of teachers I've sat in front of and said, no, actually, you're allowed to be creative. And they go, really? You know that feeling that you have when the thing you're, you're trying to do doesn't seem to make sense? Uh-huh. It doesn't make sense. You're right. Um, and I say you're right because a thousand other people have told me the same thing you just exactly. said. The thing that you're not willing to say out loud because you think it's only you, it's not only you. It's everybody. Just we don't talk about it. That's right. And I think at, at the root of it, our, our teacher training models I mean, you look at the way curriculum gets trained in Canada, new curriculum comes out, you get trained once. If you get that course the next year, you never get the training for it. Like it's, it doesn't happen. You know, we've got preamble to our curriculum documents that are 30 and 40 pages long that people spend a year writing that nobody ever reads because they go straight to the pieces they need to get done in the classroom. Conceptually, we are not building, we're not built to bring concepts to the classroom, right? We're built to bring content to the classroom. So I don't know that we could currently evaluate the things that you're talking about. I don't know how that would even happen in practice. You can say we're going to do it anyway. Um, but I don't know how two teachers in two different schools could ever be expected to understand what um, a predisposition for all the conflict in this language, it's one that's used a lot, whether or not they have a growth mindset. Right. Like, I'll give you an example. I was teaching um, a group of teacher trainers in PEI, and I asked her if I could tell the story after it happened, so I'm allowed to tell it. A group of teacher trainers in PEI. And the third week of training, third, third class of training, I walked in, I took a bunch of micro bits, I dropped, it wasn't a computer necessarily about this, but I just dropped the micro bits on the table. I'd been introduced to them and then tell them what they were. I said, go. And I walked out the door and I came back like 10 minutes later <laughs> and they were furious. You didn't tell us what we're supposed to do. What are we doing with our time? Whatever else. And there's one person off in the corner who's searching for stuff and figuring out and the rest of them are just furious. And I, I waited, we talked about it. I was, I, I asked them how they felt about it. And then about five minutes in, one of the teachers looks at me and went, oh my God, I don't have a growth mindset. I was like, okay, and? <laughs> and this, this is what we do to students all the time, right? And growth mindset's super hard, right? Now, she was the one who taught growth mindset for the system, um, like taught it to teachers. And I think we are so far away from that the, the, from that, that the idea of evaluating it, even if we could, do I think an expert could evaluate it? Okay. Maybe. Do I think that it's an expectation that we could have teachers do this all the time? No, because no. there are those now, you know, this who are coming up with rubrics for all of these things. And totally. I and, just think it's I, nonsense. I, and I'm not, and I'm not in any way suggesting their intentions aren't pure and no. that they are, you know, they're looking for ways to, to value the things that matter. And, Yet when we, I agree with you, when we get to that point where we're trying to, to fix a number or a percentage or a grade or a, you know, whatever to, to the ways in which kids interact or the ways that kids think or the way that, that kids see the world, it gets a little bit more difficult. And so I struggle with understanding how we get to the point where we know that our kids are experiencing the things that they want to experience. I'm sure a lot of it is it's performance. A lot of it is just seeing them solve world, real world problems, mm. you know, making, making their experience of learning different in the classroom. Uh, but it's a tough one for a lot of people because they want that certainty. They want to know if we're going to, okay, if we're going to make the emphasis creativity and 
and all that kind of stuff, then oh, much creativity you have to know that it's happening. <laughs> yeah, look, and I understand the bureaucratic necessity for it. Mm-hmm. Um, in PEI, I reported to the deputy minister, and we had this conversation all the time. And she's like, we need to know what's happening in the classrooms. Yes, but at the core, to me, at the core of our problem education is this idea that bureaucratically it is necessary that we assess and measure learning. Even though, from my perspective, it is impossible to assess and measure learning. We have to do it, but the fact that we have to do it doesn't make it possible, right? And that's sort of at the core of my belief in this is that learning is ineffably something that is not measurable. It is a non-counting noun. I can't say four learnings. It's non-counting, right? And so I can measure things like effort. I can measure things, and that's the one that when I teach my classes, especially at a university level, I only measure effort. How hard did you work is all I care about. So if you're in in a truly student-centered classroom, I don't think you have another choice. So if you're saying, if you're truly student-centered, and let's say you're teaching computer science again, and somebody comes in and has been coding for the last 10 years, and this person has never seen code before, are you truly student-centered by giving them the same evaluation? I wouldn't say that you are. That's not actually centering on the students and the growth that they've had in your classroom. That's deciding that there's one target everybody needs to reach at the end, and because... Uh, Jane over there has been doing it for 15 years. She could take my final exam now at the start of class, but we'll make her go through the course anyway and give her the test, right? So for me, I only care about effort. In my university classrooms, and I'll I'll give you more sacrilege, I let my students pick their final grade. So if you want to take a 90 in my course, you want a 90 in my course, there's a pile of work you're going to have to do. There's these assignments and these kinds of things, and you're going to have to come up with things on your own and... If you want a 75, then there's less that you need to do. But what I expect is that each of the things you do do, you do well, or else I'll give them back to you and make you do them again. In that way, because again, in an adult classroom, I believe everybody comes to the classroom knowing what they're gonna get anyway. I'm coming in for an A, I'm coming in for a B. How do I get a B? I got an easy answer to that. Do all this work, do it well, and you'll get a B, easy. Because I just want you to work hard. And if you work hard, A, there is no more useful skill, uh, predilection, whatever you want to call it, than effort. Effort will get you an awful long way, right? So if I'm developing that in schools and in students, I feel good about that. And then after that, I don't think it, I don't think the extra measurement counts. I don't do, think it's there. Do you ever get into the nuance of who gets to define what hard work is? Yeah, I do. I mean, like I told you earlier, some people, hard work is too hard. And I have to sort of pull them back because I may say, I may think I'm working really hard, yeah. but they may not, that may not meet your expectations of hard work. Yeah. So um, a good example for me is blog post reflections. So I originally didn't give any structure. Now I put maximum word limits uh, again, and I try to never put minimum word limits in, but I have several times gone back to people and go, how much effort you really do on that? Well, I just, no, really walk me through how much work you did. And I'm going to tell you, see the expectations when I talked about effort and expectation? I don't see any way in which this is an effort. And potentially, that's actually the best learning experience the student had in the three months during my class. Because somebody actually talked them through what it means to actually do the work. Uh, so I would think of that as a fantastic learning opportunity. Am I going to win 100% of those? No. Right. No, but again, anytime you're talking about school change, and I, and I, I don't, can't believe I'm saying this to you because you know this better than anybody you have to remind people that the current system is not perfect, right? And it seems that the, the measurements against the new idea are perfection, and yet we're willing to accept all of the inadequacies of the current system. Yeah. So it's, it's not like what I'm proposing is against the perfect system that we currently have. It's against all the flaws in this, and, and there are definitely gonna be problems with this as well, like you say. Well, I did the work, I don't care what you say. Yeah. And it's a, you know, like we were talking about last month in our podcast too, it is a different story that you tell about what education and learning looks like in institutional settings. Um, Because obviously when you get outside of the institution, it's a little bit easier to say just based on personal experience. Yeah. I go where I want to go. I learn what I want to learn when I want to learn it from whomever I can find that makes sense. And I show that learning in ways that 
makes sense for me or for the person I'm employed by or whatever else. I mean, we, we do have a lot of agency and freedom over that whole process. So I'm wondering, you know, as we kind of come to a close with this, but what would, what would be some starting points for some people who want to think more deeply about creating a community of learners and really allowing the community to take the lead role in what is learned? What would be some, some starting points for, for people who are interested in doing that? And, and how, how long do you think a shift like that takes if you're really serious about moving, moving toward that type of, of uh, classroom? Um, I tend to always tell people to, to think of something like Genius Hour if you want to dip your toe in. Um, the Genius Hour movement, again, pros and cons, um, but it tends to... It, it has enough structure and there's enough Google entries for it that people believe it. So like if you approach your principal and say, I want to do Google, I want to do a genius hour. You go, look, lots of people are doing it. It's fine. Um, and so, and I think anytime you're trying to do this, it's important to give yourself that kind of, you don't want to be fighting about this. You want this to be an exciting thing. You don't want to spend half of your time trying to do this, arguing with your vice principal about it. And the other half of the time trying to prepare for right. the classroom. Like you, you got to get it set up so that you, people are supportive and that you've got away. Now, a warning about the genius hour thing. Um, well, this is probably a PG cl- uh, podcast. So um, you, you tend to be the not liked person in the school when you start to do this stuff. And it's always a concern that I always, I always like to, to mention to people is that the person who does all the fun stuff can very quickly become the person that the other teachers look at and go, oh, some serious teaching now like every time my kids go into your classroom and they come out of it they come into my classroom why don't you want to do this with me so i think also socializing the change in the teacher's lounge is super important um and these are just practical examples of stuff i've seen right so it's great to be fun but you got to understand the fallout inside your school right just to understand how that sets up so better if you have four or five friends who are doing this too um doing it on your own is great but there are lots of reasons why that's hard to maintain. So Genius Hour, I think, is a nice one. There's a lot of stuff like the Destination Imagination, like those kinds of activities that you can sign up to that give you a little cover behind which you can shield yourself to allow this to happen. I think it's mostly about cover in that sense. Um, if you're a bit more aggressive, um, you know, language arts is a good example. So one of the things that we did is um, we talked about doing um, robotics and language arts and talked about how to do, like, could you write an instruction manual that could teach somebody how to um, do something that you know without, like those kinds of activities that can happen inside of the curriculum that hit pre-described targets, but allow you to let the, let the reins go a little bit to allow the student to really take over. And again, that's just, I've just described a good, like a reasonable teaching activity. It's not, it's not dramatic, but again, that's where your practices line up against your values, right? And that's the key. And I think the biggest focus is how are you going to do the assessment? How are you going to find a way to convince the people around you that your assessment makes sense? If you got the freedom to do it, great. That's not the reality most teachers live in. Right. If you're the senior teacher in a school, you've been teaching for 30 years, you're the bright shining light, then I don't need to tell you what to do. You already know. Right. It's that mid-career or the teacher who is on a year-to-year contract. Or, I mean, there's lots of people out on the periphery um, who don't have that kind of security, which is why I always say, and I, and I sound like such an old dude now, but my, I'm, all, I'm mostly about caution now. Like I'm like, just... I'm not telling you to do crazy stuff because I don't want you to get fired because I've seen people get fired over the years, right? Like I've seen people lose their jobs. In 2007, we had somebody arrested over one of our podcasts. Um, like be cautious, inform people around you, take little steps, find programs that are already underway that you can join into that give you some coverage. And then after that, start taking a real look at where your values line up with your practices, right? If you do believe in creativity, Think about whether or not you break it when you measure it. Are there ways that you can protect creativity from measurement, which is the way I kind of think about it. Find something complicated in your classroom that you can measure and protect the complex from it. And that way, inside of that complex creative space, you can let that community learn together and form those kinds of bonds and learn how to work well together. And I think those are the skills that people need anyway. And I think it's way more fun anyway. Are you kidding? 
I agree. And, and I, I think what you said at the end there about doing, making sure that you are actually practicing what you value and what you believe. I mean, we talked a little bit of that about that before we started recording, but there is a huge gap in many cases uh, when we step back from our practice and look at it and ask ourselves, does that really map to what I believe about how learning happens or about how kids do great things in the world or whatever else? And in many sure. cases, it doesn't. And and again, it, that's not that's not to throw teachers under the bus or educators under the bus in general. It's a hard job. It's a, it's a really, really hard job. And it's hard. Especially, hard, especially hard right now in a world where so much of the type of learning that you talk about is possible. And it is. You know, we, we talk about it and we say there's never been a better time to be a learner than today. Totally. Um, but um, that's a challenge for schools, ironically, you know, and it it uh, it changes the way that we have to think about it. Well, so they, one, one last story I want to throw in here. Yep. Go for so it. So I was talking to a teacher who sends his kid to a private school, a professor of education sends the kids to a private school. We're talking about learning online. Our kids. And I said, oh, man, my, my son has taught himself how to play guitar. He learns how to do this. And learns, and my big concern is, again, white nationalism. What's he finding? Who is he, like, not what, who is he finding online and how's that happening? That's what I was talking about in that conversation. And he says, I can't get my kids to do any of that stuff. They just, they come home from school. They talk about how they got their A. They talk about the structure. And I was like, uh-huh, you sent your kids to a private school, didn't you? And I bet you they're getting super good grades. And I bet you their classrooms are super structured. And I bet you they believe what John Hattie has been spouting for years, that's, that what we need to do is have visible learning so we can measure it and then have more learning. That's what you get. Whenever you have an ultra-structured environment, you have kids who only learn when they're told to learn. That is not the world I want to live in. Way to dangle John Hattie at the end of the interview. Oh. Nice job. <laughs> well done. Hey, listen, I really appreciate you pushing our thinking and uh, continued success in your work around this. Thanks, um, Thanks for the forward to the book that you have coming out with mm -hmm. the book with no title yet, but no certainly one yet. coming we'll up there. soon. And um, yeah, thanks so much, Dave. Really appreciate Cheers. the time. So what can you do now after listening to Dave's unique perspectives about community as curriculum? Well, I've got three suggestions for you. First, if you haven't tried Genius Hour or you don't have one at your school, Think about how you might give your students at least a small block of time each week to pursue projects that are interesting to them. Second, do an audit on how you yourself are learning in the community these days, both online and off. How can your own practice inform what you do in the classroom with students? And finally, why not use our own Modern Learners community to get a taste of what rhizomatic learning looks like? We're creating our own curriculum together around what learning and schooling looks like in the modern world. Head on over to modernlearners.community to join the fun. Next week, I interview educator Trisha Abarbia about how cultures of community are paramount for modern learning to happen. Hope you'll come back for that one. But until then, cheers, everyone. And as always, thanks so much for listening.